and welcome to Tell the Damn Story, the podcast that celebrates the trials and tribulations, challenges and joys of creativity, and hopefully, along the way, helps you decide how you want to tell your damn story. Today, we're going to speak about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to go all the way home, and we're going to talk to you about why we write and why learning to write is important. Okay, but who are these people? Yeah, who is There is moi, Chris Ryan, and I am a um, hyphenate at this point, both independently and traditionally published fiction writer, a teacher, spokesperson, dad. Uh, Deprimate uh, chair, man about town. There you go. Um, Worshipper of the goddess is what I am. And who? is really steering the ship, ladies and gentlemen. Who am I sidekick to? <laughs> Who are we here hoping will save the day? Why, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> there can only be one man. It is the legendary comic book scribing, iconic teenage detectives writing, great underused character developing, and globe-trotting creator of the world-renowned Aaron Blackjack Day, the American African-American soldier of fortune set in the 1930s whose adventures reflect today's problems. Well, it could only be the one, the only, the legendary, mythic, iconic Alex Simmons. Oh, no, that's the other show. Hey, how you doing, everybody? What about those masks? Good day to you, Alex. Good how day, you doing? Chris. Oh, you know, I got to tell you, Chris, I'm missing, I'm missing uh, the fan uh, write up that uh, introduced you. I'm missing a little of that here. It's you know? a beautiful thing, but um, yeah, I, I do I do tend to downplay a little bit. Yeah, a uh, little um, bit. Yeah, and, well, and, to the and there's a reason. You. There's a reason for that. There's a reason to to everything. There is a reason. <laughs> um, everything a turn, 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 turn. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It kind of it kind of goes into our first thing about you know our first low is the update. Uh, I continue the rewrite of Everyone Pays. This was formerly known as City of Woe. And um, the grand experiment of will Alberto Gunna Gennaro work as Alberta Gunna Gennaro. And I've got to tell you that uh, Detective Gunna, she is working really, really Ah. working well. Uh, last week, I was able to field test uh, a couple of chapters um, in a Mystery Writers of America uh, critique circle, like a writing circle. And uh, one of the members in there had read the uh, rewrite I was doing with uh, the editor. And uh, she knew Gunner the way Gunner used to be. And the first thing she said was, I absolutely love Gunner as a woman. Uh, it's organic. Uh, it feels right. She's hilarious. She's fresh. So uh, that's a big shot in the arm. And uh, I'm several, several chapters in. And um, what I'm finding is there's moments that I can add little dimensions because we have such a fresh um, backstory for her. There's little lines here and there. Um, she's much more visual than uh, the older Gunna, you know, was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because I'm thinking and, she, uh, you know, how how would she say this? What would she do? 
you know, she's got this little thing that she does. And, um, you know, when she's trying to make a point to Mallory and it's, uh, it's fine. And the other thing I found is that all the lines that Gunner used, uh, to tease Mallory still work. Like, uh, there's that, there's that exchange, you know, Mallory is married to the lovely Gina and she's, you know, Palm Sunday, they made the lasagna and, uh, he goes, uh, uh, she goes, um, well, that, then I'm coming home with you if there's lasagna. Goes, well, why don't you? She's, you know, she's going to cut a slice for you anyway. And he goes, uh, uh, gonna go. She says, uh, I love that woman. You have a die in the line of duty. I'm going to marry her. And his response is, if it comes to that, I'm going to shoot you before I die. You know? <laughs> it works just as well. And yeah. that's one of the, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is that, you know, it's make them human, make them human. Yeah. It's not, they're not a stereotype. They're human. So it's really a lot of fun. I'm going to shoot you. That's a great line still. Yeah, it's, it's, it, that really helps define them. They have been partners for a while. Yeah. They yeah. have that. So it's pretty cool. So they, that's one thing off our checklist. Yeah, so far so good. Let's continue the work and we'll see where we are. Okay. Um, second checklist. WandaVision updates. Yes, and I watched the first three episodes uh, since we last met. Haven't seen think? one that dropped. Haven't seen so, one that dropped. So you talked about your feelings of one to three, and then I'm going to say non-spoiler about episode four. Okay, good, good. So first, let me let me say that let me say this about that. Okay, um, I sat and watched it with my 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 offsprings because I have to stop calling them kids because they're, yeah. they're adults. Yeah. Right? So my offsprings are adults. All children. three. Of them. We all we all enjoyed them. We all enjoyed them. Um, I think it's 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 either a blessing or a curse that my kids through me learned about Lucy and the mm-hmm. Dick Van Dyke show and all that stuff. So they'd seen that they'd seen reruns and things coming up because I watched you know the reruns and things as well as I was exposed to shows when they were originally. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm that old, folks. Deal with it. So they got all the nuances. They got, as a matter of fact, they were jumping on. Someone said, "That's the set from the Dick Van Dyke." I mean, they were already there. As I was, you know, in my head saying it, they were verbalizing it. So we and totally that's a lot got, of fun. Yeah, we totally got into that, and of course, suspected. And if if none of you or some of you have not seen any of the episodes, slight spoiler: they totally got that this is fun to watch and everything, but something's off. Right. You know, they automatically were, yeah, and, and, but they, the, the show, the ep, especially episode one, which sets that tone immediately and keeps it, did it so well. So mm-hmm. well. It's like they, it's like an homage to it. It's not like, oh, it's a gimmick, we're doing this thing, right. kind of. It's an homage. So everybody did their homework. The set people did their homework. The costume people did their homework. The cinematographers did their homework. Oh, yeah. The camera work is reflective of that. And Even you, the uh, the rate the set ratio or yeah, the screen ratio yeah, is right. all that all the that sound is right yeah into the the second and third episode and as you know there's a shift again try not to give things away there's a shift and and you get a different sense of again the old TV humor and stuff like that again everything matched even the opening you know they just they got the tone the feel. Give and again, my family and I sitting there go. That's the opening from such and such a show. I really and then they mixed it with so they pulled generations in 
for the fun of it, never, though, totally letting you forget something's off. Right, right. I agree. Something's coming. This isn't, mm, I, I don't know. And yet, having fun with, pull yeah. and I buy it, blah, 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 blah. So we really enjoyed that. I think it's clever. Hats off to them taking that risk. Hats off to them doing their homework. Hats mm. off to the performances. And, you know, uh, one of the things they did really well in those first three is they threaded in to all of that homage. Mm-hmm. Two questions or three questions. Right? One, why sitcoms? Mm-hmm. Didn't answer it, right? But yeah. why sitcoms? So now, one of the one of the things that's going to be remembered as being fun about this episode, uh, this, this series, is how many people were able to talk and put forth their different theories and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I have a theory on the sitcom. You know, if you go to the movie Age of Ultron. When Wanda and Pietro are talking to Ultron, you know, and Ultron says, "Do you have a big? You're not seeing the big picture. It's not a big picture. I have the little picture. I take it out. I look at it every day." And they tell the story about uh, a bomb taking out their parents and half the building and stuff, and another bomb landing but not going off, and they stay there for several days under the table, staring at the Stark Industries bomb waiting for it to kill them. Mm-hmm. I have a theory that there was a TV on somewhere near there playing sitcoms, and it was the only source of, of comfort, and that she is in some kind of extreme pain and retreating into that comfort that she had in that, le- you know, in that previous... Again, you know, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, that's okay. Watch the show. Just watch everything, yes. Yeah. Um, there's also... You, you said there is something off. Yes, there's something off about the whole place. There's something off about the town. There's something off about Wanda. But there is something really clearly off about Vision. Mm-hmm. Rather than have you guess, right, there's two things. One, he has beautiful blue human eyes. Mm-hmm. And Vision had mechanical eyes mm-hmm. it still kind of looked blue but they were clearly mechanical the other thing is that in this show vision is fast and you're you like know you've read, you've read yeah you've read comics <laughs> as long as vision is a lot of things and has tremendous powers being fast isn't one of them mm-hmm. so who is fast Pietro Pietro who else and, and what kind of eyes did he have blue eyes, beautiful blue eyes. I think another theory I have is that somehow the two sources of her pain are mixed, which would be cool and enjoyable and and all that sort of stuff, except for that episode two bed scene. That'll be a little weird. Well, and the results of said, you know, is also, but let's let's not go there. But so, you know, if you can just overlook that for a minute and all that sort of stuff, because, uh, it's mostly vision, but those two, they, you know, there's, they're little telltale things. And I think when we see all nine episodes in retrospect or in reviewing, we're going to pick up a ton more of those little things, mm-hmm. you know, so, someone pointed out the toaster in that commercial. If you look at it, 
it's a mechanical, right? It's a mechanical thing. It has a face. Yeah. It also has that little red dot. Yeah. <clears throat> that, and it also makes the sound that uh, uh, Stark bombs go when they're about to explode. You know, remember in Iron Man one when he one of his own bombs explodes. Yeah. That's the sound. Is there's all those little tiny things, which is fascinating. All right. Now let's talk about episode four. This should get you to run out of the episode and over to your TV. Yeah, all right. Now turn us off and go watch this. <laughs> uh, I was talking about you. and I have Oh, oh me. Oh, for, oh. for 22 minutes talking alone while uh, you watch it. <laughs> um, if you weren't hooked by the first three episodes, you will be hooked by the fourth. Because the fourth episode is where WandaVision goes full Marvel, you okay. know, and it's, I don't want to tell him more than that. Good. Let's um, not. Cause I, but yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. It's, it's. Okay. So wait here. I'm going. And <laughs> there's now a trailer already a trailer for episode five. That is even more Marvel than episode four was. So I think we're really going and I, I think, but I think when we're all finishes, we're going to be like, "Holy! They really put so many layers in." You know. Let, let me we give folks a reason for listening to uh, uh, episode one seventy five or one seventy four. Yeah, you know, previous episode of the show, we talk about dollars and cents, and now you're going to get us an idea of where those dollars and cents are going, yeah. as well as how well they are spent. Okay, mm-hmm. just just bringing that up. So. It's either the previous episode or the one just before that we talk about dollars and cents and Marvel and all that good stuff. And I will tell one last final last thing is oh, that one one more the, one the more leads thing. Yes. the leads in this show are doing tremendously subtle work. You know, uh, for for Paul Bettany to be to to come across both as the vision and as the stereotypical early 60s, 70s sit, sitcom stumbling dad yeah. is a fascinating and difficult balance. Yeah. Um, Olsen, what is her name? Um, who's playing Wanda? Uh, forgot, I got, I forgot her first name. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, coming for you now. Yeah. So she... If you go back to watch the first three, watch how she takes on the body language of each decade. You know, the where the arms went, when the faces, the tone. You can see when she's doing Mary Tyler Moore and when she's doing Lucy. And all of that work is, and she's wandered throughout. It's, it's really fascinating how much work is going into this. And then... The fourth episode happens. Yo, yeah, once we finish recording, and once all of our legions of fans yeah. catch their breath from this episode, because I know <laughs> you got to recover, then go and see it. All right, that's the Elizabeth update for those. Olsen. Right. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth Olsen. There you go. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, there you go. I'm uh, also a coming one... fan of Catherine Hahn. And yes. to, was it Tayona Paris? Yes. Yes. You see more, you see more Tayona. That's all I'm going to say. 
Yeah. All right. Oh, okay. Um, it's um, you know what? You carry on. I'll be right back. That's right. She's okay. just fantastic. Now, uh, it's time. It's the, the time of the show in our uh, recent incarnation of Tell the Damn Story where we say, hey, Tim Fielder published Infinitum, yeah. an amazing, sprawling African-American history, sci-fi, Afro-futurism uh, tale, epic, beautiful art, wondrous story. Don't, don't be, don't, don't sleep on Tim Fielder's Infinitum. There you yeah. go. See, yeah. who says we can't do commercials? Yeah, who's, I, who, yeah, who did say that, right? <laughs> what are you talking about, Willis? Uh, yeah, no, Tim, as a matter of fact, Tim just called me a few minutes before, but I couldn't take the call because I was getting ready to go online with you. So I will call him after and tell him, we plugged it again, bro. Uh, and you know what? We, we plugged it two weeks in a row. I think yeah. the least he yeah, can do it. is come on for a guest spot. Yeah. Oh, well, great. Okay. you really want him. Tim Fielder is, uh, was t it was Tim, Chris, and I who created uh, Tell the Damn Story 175 episodes ago. That's right. 175. Look at how special we are. Yes. <laughs> I'm so special. Okay, we are so cool. So it's funny you should mention telling the story, the length and breadth of um, the African-American experience or cultural experience or historical experience, because uh, that's another aspect of today's show. Yes. And this is this is all you. You gave me this homework. And when I saw the age of this clip, I was like, what the hell? But never. Yeah. Never doubt the wisdom of the Simmons. <laughs> Ryan writes, Simmons says. So, here we go. So um, as, as the universe is fond of doing, every now and then it just, it just suddenly, suddenly something pops up, like the genie in Aladdin. Something pops up in front of you, and you're going, where did this come from? Why is this, why is this here? So I'm on YouTube. I was doing some research, not on the subject matter that suddenly pops up in front of me, but it's this video. It's a little promo for this video. It's a little window clip. As you know, on YouTube, you see a little picture. If you rest your cursor on it, it moves. So it says, all the way home. And then it says, shot these two women, two white women who look very suburban, proper, 19, late 50s, early 60s, right? Look to them. And, and I'm looking at them and going, what is this? And they look like they're concerned as they're standing out in front of some nice home. So I'm saying, okay, suburbs, something like that. And I, I'm looking at this. I'm going, okay, you, you know, for whatever reason, now you got my curiosity. So I hit it. And I find myself watching this like 20 some odd minute piece in black and white. And it's, as Chris puts it after watching it, you know, because I, I asked him to, it's, it's, it's like a propaganda piece or an instructional video <laughs> or a PSA, whichever way you want to look at it, about race relations and a black family trying to buy a home in what has up until this point been a nice, quiet, white neighborhood and i'm thinking why does this suddenly pop up here you know i mean especially considering where we've been for the past four years and in the past oh the early part of january some of the stuff that was going down why didn't it pop up then why is it popping up now so i have no idea yet folks i still don't but i'm watching this piece and what struck me and please remember i was born in the 50s so i remember some of this stuff but what struck me as I'm watching this is the dialogue, and particularly the dialogue at the end, 
the, the, the sort of community meeting at the end that takes place. And that community meeting dialogue is pretty on point because I know it's on point because I just heard some of that stuff at a community meeting uh, that was videotaped uh, just a few months ago. And so what I'm looking at is something that was shot in the late 50s, early 60s, and the fact that the, the conversation is still going on. Oh, yeah. You know, it's still happening right, I mean, almost to the letter of each word. And that's kind of sad. You know, uh, it's infuriating you know, to talk to some and sad to others. Um, there has been movement. There has been forward movement. Uh, I can say that some people within the film make the obvious statements, truthful statements, and then there are the nice statements that you want to hear. I, I found myself questioning how many of you saying this really believe it, because, <laughs> hey, you are actors. But nevertheless, the words were said, and that is, that's a legitimate conversation. That's a conversation that I'd heard before, definitely have heard recently, and I know will continue to hear. So it just went into storytelling, how to tell that story, why are we still telling stories like that, and going forward, how do we tell them better, and, right. and how are those stories going to even, even grow or develop you know, because I would, I would prefer a positive ending. But as I said, if we're still saying the same things all these years later, right. what's the new lens that we have to approach this with? Or, or are we doomed to, you know, to Groundhog Day? Are we doomed to repeat ourselves, you know, generation after generation? Well, I, I think we have a good dose of Groundhog Day going on, sure. But uh, one of the things that, you know, it was... It was so, I had no idea where we were going to go with this video until that's, you know, kind of, I don't know what you want to call the, the ending where everyone, you know, is talking about, you know, their, their the white community is gathered, yeah, the, the, the moral, the moral white community. Right. Yeah. But then I, you know, I thought of it in terms of, um, you know, the last two years, three years, you know, and Black Lives Matter and uh, white privilege and all that. And one of the things that struck me, if we're going to, you know, we're going to say, how do you tell that story and, and how do you tell it now? Um, one of the things that struck me was the white privilege of it all mm. in that the movie opens with, you know, the, gal, old, the old guy putting the for sale sign up, right? And... Uh, uh, beautiful car pulls up and a person in a very nice business suit and overcoat and hat has black person and they shake hands and talk and you never hear the conversation but clearly they want to buy this house a nice looking house and all that sort of stuff it goes almost immediately away from that black couple to the neighbors oh my god what the hell what are they doing and then all the phones and all that stuff and here's Here's the white privilege of it all. We never see that black couple again. Mm. Never. So, one thing. Black in, couple with children, by the way. Yeah, it's not like children, they showed yes, up yes. You know, on, on Harleys and things. No, right? no, that no, was beautiful. I mean, yeah. it was, you couldn't, 
make a, a, a more acceptable, you know, this has got to be the late 50s, early 60s, less, you couldn't make a, a, a more acceptable uh, nuclear family, right? Mm -hmm. the, cars, the car and the clothes said success, you know, it was the exact number of kids, you know, minus yeah. the fraction, right? All that sort yeah, of stuff. Minus the fraction, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. So, dog. They named the dog with them. But in, in uh, 2021, that family doesn't leave the film. Yeah. That family comes to the meeting and you say all that stuff, say it to our face, mm -hmm. you know, and, and maybe they bring a contingent of Black Lives Matter with them, you know. And uh, it would be very deep into it, very deep yeah. into it, yeah. yeah. You know, and I was thinking, if it was a modern um, a suburban, you know, family uh, or, or neighborhood, it would be the white, you know, it, oh, man, there are, I mean, it's really an affluent neighborhood that is all white these days. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in a, a, a blue collar or, or, you know, light, light blue, almost white uh, uh, collar uh, uh, community. And it is extremely diverse, you know. Um, so for it to be that, you know, it has to be a rare thing. And then. You go from there to the lens of January 6th, and you're like, well, maybe not as hard to find as we thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons that, that that kind of video is surfacing, one of the, you know, one of the reasons why is that conversation still needs to be told, that, that be had, be uh, kept. And I think the battle, I think the next battle really in this, you know, they're going to say. The next like, battle, you can keep talking. <laughs> there's uh, someone trying to get us to stop. I see. <laughs> I see the conspiracy theory. I yeah, see. The camera went flying, folks, in case you were wondering, what's that sound? Yes. I didn't hit They're them. Try, they They're trying to stop us, but they won't silence us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yes, we have the we have to get the vaccines out. We have to, all that sort of stuff. We have to get the economy to keep going. But underneath all of that, and if we're really going to heal and if we're going to really move on, we have to. We have to deal with a requirement of truth, you know, mm. and that and that extends to. All of the BS that was in that video was, oh, my God, what are they going to do to our, our, our um, property value? Our property value. Yeah, right. Oh, oh you know, and, and when they started saying, oh, you know, they're going to bring uh, uh, violence and danger and all that stuff, it's, oh, my God, that's the opening speech of someone's foray, first foray into presidential politics, you know? I mean, we aren't, we haven't made the progress that people would lead us to believe, you know, and it's that challenge for all of us to say, all right, well, listen, that's not how I'm going to live my life. And that's not, you know, and, and move and be aware and keep learning, you know. Um, but again, what that does say, <clears throat> pardon me, it's, it's like I always ask, what prompted that story? What prompted that story then? What prompts the kind of stories we need to tell now? And one of the things I looked at, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't know why I'm choking up here. Um, one of the things that I'm looking at is what's happening now in film and television 
in terms of black characters and black stories, but also stories, you know, we're in, even moving away from, uh, oh God, what is it? Another thing on YouTube are clips from various old TV shows. It's a lot of clips from um, Kung Fu. Right. With Carradine playing a white slash Asian character right. uh, who studied and became a Shaolin monk and now wow. comes to America. I mean, well, in retrospect, that entire show is white privilege. Well, but again, that's where, developed. Going, that's where I'm going. He, okay, go for it. He got that show because a certain number of producers and, and bigwigs didn't believe that America would buy that show with an Asian or Chinese lead. You know, Bruce Lee was considered. They said, oh, well, his, his, his diction isn't clear enough. Now, maybe there would have been a problem. Maybe not. I don't know. But they actually I had a hundred. Clear? They had hundred other <laughs> Chinese and Japanese actors in Hollywood at that time that could have taken on that role. Yeah. And, no. and they, they went, no, no, we'll give it to you. So again, but, but stories are to being, that point, though, the stories are being told now need to continue to be told and we need to build on that, not just black lives. And I'm as black person, believe me, I'm, I'm all for that. But we need to be more honest, like you said, more truth needs to be in the stories so that we see what's really happening in life pro or con and can start to see the world the way it really is, not the way some folks would like it to stay. And and I'm going to tie Kung Fu into today's New York Times. Here we go. This is, oh, I want to see this, bro. Go for it. Yeah, the argument that you mentioned before was that Bruce Lee's diction wasn't clear enough. That's what they said. Go back, going back and watch the show. David Carradine's diction wasn't clear. And that added a racial insult on top of the lack of clarity. So, you know, what are you doing? You're doubling down on the insult. Okay. So I'm going to tie that into and into the stories we need to tell and all that stuff. In today's New York Times, below the fold, the bottom uh, left-hand story, okay? But it's still on page one. Bear with me for about two minutes to see what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, Washington is the uh, the tie line. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene had just finished questioning whether a plane really flew into the Pentagon on September 11, 2001 and flatly stating that President Barack Obama was secretly Muslim when she paused to offer an aside implicating another former president in a crime. Quote, that's another one of those Clinton murders, Ms. Green said, referring to John F. Kennedy Jr.'s death in a 1999 plane crash, suggesting that he had been assassinated because he was a potential rival to Hillary Clinton for a New York Senate seat. Ms. Green casually unfurled the cascade of dangerous and patently untrue conspiracy theories in a previously unreported 40-minute video that was originally posted to YouTube in 2018. It provides a window into the warped worldview amplified by the freshman Republican Congresswoman from Georgia, She was just elected to Congress, okay, with that kind of thinking, all right? Who, in the three months since she was elected, has created a national brand for herself 
as a conservative provocateur who has proudly brought the hard-fought fringe to the Capitol. In the process, Ms. Green, 46, has also created a dilemma for Republican leaders who for months have been unwilling to publicly rebuke or punish her in any way, blah, blah, blah. There is a serious problem in America with a portion of the, uh, America saying we can say anything we want and call it true. And what I've recently seen is that the really big donors, the big, huge corporations are starting to yank their money away from the patently untrue. Mm. They have to continue it on their end. We have to continue writing truth. Whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, we have to know our stuff and we have to write our truth. Right? Not our truth, the truth. We've got to be careful uh, yeah, of that phrasing. Okay, yeah. We've got to be careful of that phrasing. It yeah. has to be the truth. It has to be provably true. And with a group that far to the fringe that is gaining power, every group that is not that group has to be concerned. People of color, religions that are not their religions, someone like me mouths off about them. <laughs> right? We are, you know, we have to really express what America is because most of the people on January 6th were duped. They went running in there. They been were told by their president. They thought they were actually going to take over and start a new government. Think about that. They haven't gone away. And you have elected officials now who are saying, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't press charges. It's too late now. And, Everything's fine, which opens the doorway for that exact thing to come back. Remember, Hitler lost his first attempt at takeover. He had to go lick his yeah, wound. Five years. Yes. And then he came back, you know. And, you know, it would be, I would, I would uh, poo poo that comparison before January 6th. But it was a big turning point, you know, and you want to you want to say, what's this got to do with all the way home? That video, and what's this got to do with Black Lives Matters or people of color? Look how they were treated on January 6th and look how they were treated at any other demonstrate peaceful demonstration that involved people of color, Black Lives Matter. Any of those other groups. The difference is real. The privilege is real. The danger is real. And part of what we can do is write that and keep people's, you know, keep it in the consciousness and in the conversation that we are still in a battle for this country. We're not done. You know, that, that film clip was ancient, right? Yeah. Uh, late 50s, early 60s, and timely. And there are those who would like to take it back there. 
I'm not going with him. <laughs> How about you? I've been there. I'm not yeah. going back. Yeah, been there. Yeah. Been there. So, yeah. So you know, we have we have to be well aware that uh, our efforts are probably more needed than ever. So speaking of that, and and looking at again telling the stories and having to damn or otherwise uh, truth and wanting to tell stories better the third part of our episode comes into play one says how well do i have to be able to tell the story how well do i have to write in order to get my message my story out whether we're talking fiction documentary or, or, or otherwise. And is there a purpose to even learning more about writing and learning to write? And as two people who have gone down sometimes separate paths on our journeys to becoming writers, I thought sharing some of the consciousness of those experiences and, and looking at the question of why continue to learn to write? Do I even need to learn to write to begin with? Can I just do it? and be done with it. So, Chris, let me let me just, you know, give you a moment here and say as a teacher in the high schools, you've been teaching creative writing for how long? Well, I've been teaching writing. Sometimes it's creative, sometimes it's you know, basic essays, sometimes it's uh journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, this is my 30th year. 30 years. Yeah. What have you found to be the benefits of one's improving in their writing? Uh, being taken seriously. Elaborate on that, please. Okay, sure. Um, the essays I get in September, year after year, are not in an essay form. They are not fully thought out. They're not coherent. They're not proofread. Uh, they are easily dismissed as having nothing to offer. And that is my argument and my um, holy mission for the 10 months I am allowed to have interaction with each group, right? It's to convince them that what they have in their mind and hearts and souls matters. And that being able to express it clearly. I'm not saying they have to be Shakespeare or, you know, Lawrence Block or Lee Child or, you know, George Will or whoever, you know. Or, Walter Mosley. Yeah. Walter Mosley or Alex Simmons or any, you know. Um, but Thank you. Nice, nice grouping there. <laughs> there you go, bro. Um, but to be able to say their simple message whether it's, you know, I bought this item and it came, it was delivered broken or a speech that some of my kids have spoken on the courthouse steps, you know, last year, you know, about Black Lives Matter, about, you know, just name the, the, the crises, right? Be able to express that well is to be taken seriously. And as we just spoke a couple of minutes ago, there are people who are, want to not take us seriously so badly 
that they think they can just make up anything to dismiss us, you know, whether us be Obama or any other grouping, you know. Um, I watched uh, on Showtime, there's a show called The Circus. It's a political show, you know, and uh, they were interviewing people, I guess, the day before the inauguration. And they were, they were still, one woman offered to eat her shoe if uh, Trump wasn't reinstalled as president. This was the day before the inauguration. That person, her sentences were, you know, not clear. Her, uh, her logic was ridiculous, you know, but she absolutely 100% believed. They stay in a, a, a bubble of their own, and uh, that's dangerous. But when put before a camera and allowed to say and, and saying things poorly and not being able to support their thesis that the election was a fraud or that um, Antifa ran in January 6th first, well, what proof do you have? I just know. That's ridiculous. And if we don't want to be that, if we don't want to be dismissible, we have to be able to make our points coherently and with credible evidence to support it. Whether you're talking a a thesis or you're talking a statement in court or you're talking any number of other ways of communicating. Even if we're talking about a blackjack story, Mm -hmm. right? You and I always... You know, we battle to find every typo and to make sure we do the research so that the facts of that story, what tank, what um, country, what city and what country, you know, what yeah, was going on at that time period. Yeah. All of it has to support the thesis that blackjack has to do this thing because, you know, whatever the thematic evil is before that it's it's it is not it's not different you know and if you uh yeah you're a student you teach the uh in the film school new york film school right mm-hmm. if they want to have their screenplay taken seriously it can't be dismissed out of hand you know one of the things that i find i have to uh share with my students eagerly or aggressively is is where they come from when they're writing their stories a, a, a lot of times uh new writers or young writers or beginning writers will want to go for the big story and often that topic has nothing to do with their lives it's not an experience they've lived it's not one that they know somebody who's gone through it but it's a big subject it's a big topic it's a it's um, trending at the time, so that's what I'm going to write about. And they start writing, and, and they're coming from nothing. They're coming from no knowledge, no experience, and it doesn't ring true. And right. subsequently, I take them back to, like, I'll give the for instance, one of the things that was very popular for about three years, didn't matter what group I got, where, and I get students from all over the world, group would come together, and at least two, three people want to do something about homeless people. And I would say, okay, what do you, what do you know about homeless people? So, well, they, they don't have a home. And, well, you know, they have to live on the street. And, well, you know, they, they, 
they have to beg. And that's it. I keep, yeah, but how did they get there? Who, who's there? You know, are they just one? Are they, and someone actually said to me, well, you know, they have a drug problem, so they wound up on the street. I said, that's not every homeless person. There are right. people who had a full home, a yearly income that was decent, a full family, didn't do drugs, didn't drink like crazy, and still wound up on the street. How did that person get there? Why did that happen to them? And so they, you know, initially some will fight because they just want to go for the, for the hook. They don't want to put any substance in it. But if you can get to them, if you can get them to just work, then they start to see, okay, I don't know anything about how can I tell this story? Why would I want to do this story? What I will always guide them back to is if you really want to do a story that involves a homeless person, for some reason you feel committed to that, but you can't do it from their standpoint or you don't have the time to do the homework, then you can do it from the standpoint of somebody who knows nothing about them. Right. Right? You know, that's coming from some truth. You, you have an idea of what that's like, and you can start to build out of that. So, you know, as I even said in the tip I, I, I put in my newsletter recently, Whenever possible, try to base your fa- your fiction or your fancy on fact. Create a, a credible world in which you can have these extraordinary things going on, or you can explore the dynamics of life. And to know how to do that, you have to, as 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 Chris and I have talked about for 175 episodes beyond, um, know how to pull from your own experiences. Know how to collect. Uh, experiences information and points of view from others, know how to do your reading research, but then research. know how to express that when you put the pen to paper. Yeah, what were you saying? Well, I I want to go with your writer who wants wants to write about homelessness. You know, in, in 2021, you can Google articles, you can Google interviews, you can YouTube interviews, um, a day in life of a, a, a homeless person, mm-hmm. dump, dumpster diving. You, there's, it, there's so much. I mean, everything, everything that you want to know is out there to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but the other, the second point I would make is that one of the things you learn is that you have to get past no. Right. So you might have your elevator pitch. Right. And then for those who don't know, an elevator pitch is a quick explanation of what your story is about. Right. That you could say in the span of an elevator ride, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, you really should have it down 60 seconds or less. Yeah. Right? So that might get you in the door. But then you'll have to deliver. And I'll give a really uh, um, and a, a very recent example that is haunting me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the writing circle, I have this uh, wonderful uh, Indian woman who's a uh, uh, debut novel is doing really well, and God bless her and all that sort of stuff. So we read the first chapters and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Mallory and Gunner are going to the first crime scene, and there is. Uh, already uh, the press is there and there's uh, one character Gaina Ali and she is uh, a New York City reporter so I'm thinking of it like a, you know one of the local channels rather than one of the national channels mm-hmm. right? and she has has covered Mallory and Gunner to the point where they have a bit of a reputation for the kind of weird 
weird police cases that come to them, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a quick scene where, uh-oh, you know, let's go. Here she is, right? That kind of thing. Don't look at her, you know, that kind of thing. And Gaynor Lee comes out, and she's pure New Yorker. But it stopped this wonderful uh, uh, Indian woman, this uh, uh, writer of of ascending reputation, right? Um, and she said, I, I'm very sensitive when you write uh, again, uh, you know, uh, Indian characters, where uh, I am very concerned when they are, are portrayed as villains. And I was surprised, right? And my reaction, my initial reaction was, she's not a villain, she's a New Yorker. <laughs> right? But you cannot get away from someone's perception. Mm-hmm. This knocked her out of the story, right? I have to think about, okay, how do you represent, you know, I want, and that's her name, that's, that, that's the character's name, and she is tough and all that sort of stuff, tough New York reporter who is Indian. There's, there's so many uh, ethnicities represented in New York City. You have to, you know, so... Um, I've really been puzzling over in the paragraph that we see them. Right? We only see her for about a paragraph. In the entire novel, she only has this one appearance? No, no, no. But this is what stopped this person who is... Mm-hmm. Who, you know, a respectful or, 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 or she was respectful in what she said, but I respect her opinion because, you know, OK, she's a new set of eyes and you got to take into consideration. Um, so if you, you know, if you're serious about being a writer, you have to write your story. You know, that's the first draft. You let it suck. Then you rewrite it to make it suck less. And then you have to look at it from a point of view of how do I make it bulletproof? How do I make my story true to what it has to be, but representative in a way that doesn't trip it up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the gatekeepers now are very diverse. Mm-hmm. So, because the readership is very diverse, the audience is very diverse. So you have to be aware that what you think is, you know, adequate or or better shorthand for representing homeless person or a reporter who happens to be Indian American, New Yorker, mm-hmm. if it's going to be seen by a different background the same way, you know? And, and one of the things I'm um, going to have to check with Gunner, it's one of the things I'm going to have to check about Lieutenant Dan. It's, you know, it's... If you that, want that to also, create... That also to comes create. down to... That comes down to you also needing to understand or, or practice and build on the ability to write, to tell the story, to choose the right words to create an imagery, to create a character that feels genuine, to create a sense of the environment 
so that that world that you have this story going on within feels genuine to your audience so that we fall into it, we are engaged into it, we are lost into it because the story is so well told. And yes, even after 30 years of teaching writing in schools and my years of writing, not, not teaching as, often, as much as you have, but teaching for a number of years, um, we still are learning. We are still, and anybody who's listened to the show, and you should, uh, go to some of the back uh, episodes. Chris has even talked just in the past year about the growth in his writing from working with a different editor, one who has, you know, uh, a very extensive professional background and has been working with him on a rewrite of an existing story. So there's there's the, the, the part of the thing that I think a lot of us, especially creatives, because when you write or when you dance or when you compose music or, or when you're a filmmaker, photographer or painter and you're creating something that has an emotional connection to you and then you put your baby out there for the, for the world to see and react to, you know, it's personal. There's, there's a lot of personal in it. You know, and it's, it's hard for it not to be personal. What you try to do is you become either professional or as you become uh, motivated to share more and more of your work is you try and, and develop a little bit of a shell and a filter that allows you to take constructive criticism and apply it as right. opposed to being opposed to anything that doesn't jive with how you see what you're doing, you know, how beautiful it is or how wonderful it is. And I think you only gain that by growing. You know, yeah. whether you are yeah, whether you are learning from books, from videos, from taking classes from a professional teacher, or taking coaching or classes from a professional in the industry in which you are trying to uh, expand and grow. You know, yeah. being open to learning, being open to the fact that I can continue to grow no matter how long I do this. And I think, you know, sometimes you just need a guide to get you there. Yeah. And and the reason I brought up this particular, the Gainer Ali example is mm -hmm. because we have to remain, if we're, if we're writers, we have to remain open to the possibility that what we're writing, what we think is on the page, is not actually on the page. Yeah. I'm not going to change Gaina Ali into some representative of, you know, the UN. No. <laughs> but I have to look at her through the filter of um, how others see it. You know, yeah. and this was a very helpful comment, you know. Um, It'll probably be, you know, I don't think the answer, by the way, in case anyone's like, well, just throw a hajib on it. No, that's, that's, you know, don't put it, just put her in the costume. That's not the thing. Yeah. That's, that's disrespectful, right? You, again, this is where, you know, we've talked for 175 episodes and probably 75 of them, we have mentioned the, um, doing the character bias, mm -hmm. you know, and asking the more questions you ask about your character, you know, the more she is. And what I know now is that woman didn't recognize her as a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker first. Mm. You know, you're African-American, right? I'm a mutt. 
right? <laughs> I am, man. You know, I'm Irish. You know, for for my whole life, I thought I was Irish and Spanish. It's actually Portuguese. That's what I find out. Because um, my mom doesn't know anything. God bless her. Um, but all of that was filtered through the Bronx. You know, um, my wife, first generation goddess. No, <laughs> first generation <laughs> Sicilian. Right? There's more. Of that, but still, she grew up in America. So, if you listen to her and you listen to her parents, there's a completely different worldview. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have to be clear, and I have to. It's it's the the sacred duty of the writer is to get in that one little paragraph that she's a New Yorker. She's not. Uh, she's maybe Indian American, but she, her parents may have come from India, but she grew up probably in one of the five boroughs. Yeah. I will will say two things about that one. um, And, and I, I, I don't disagree with anything Chris has said at this point. I would add to that, that we, when we being writers look at a situation like that, there is okay. In this single moment in this story, is there something I can do that clarifies really what we want to get across, whether it's pro, the person's a positive influence or a negative influence? Is there some way to clarify that? The other things we look at is stepping back further from the story to take a a more panoramic view and say, if I apply something here in the story or something here in the story, would it clarify or change the perception that is seen here? Mm-hmm. So another thing is looking at the greater storytelling and saying, can I address this situation in a way that it happens right at this moment, or do I need to set it up earlier here, or do I need to uh, clarify it more here in a later moment? And that clarification or setup can come from dialogue or something visual or whatever. Right. So. Again, another reason for, as we've said, you said 75 times, you know, about the character bio. I think it's probably 85 times we've talked about um, the de- the devil is in or the details and the detail is in the rewrites. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely, the more you go back to your story and you tweak and you fine-tune and you pare down and whatever, the more you can adjust things in such a way that the story becomes exactly what it's supposed to be. And resonates, hopefully, the way you really want it to be. And that comes from, again, learning your craft. Yep. And here's a punchline on that. So I, I, I wrote, you know, a, a physical description that, you know, an elegant Indian-American woman until she opens her mouth and then it's pure New York fire, right? Or juggernaut, pure New York juggernaut. So now we're problem solved, right? And then I get... and, and Gunner was talking, and I let her say what she wants to say, and she says something absolutely awful, which creates a new... So sometimes you have to be, okay, listen, character. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't say that, you know, so you have to kind of, you got to get all the way to home base, right? So, yeah, it's... Yeah, you know, it's funny. Part of the deal. I have have a a big problem with the N-word. It's it's never been my favorite word. I can in, in, in my which one of us has a bigger problem with you that? do you do and you're okay. not, oh my yeah, god you're not, of the darker hue. 
Um, but in in some roles that I've played, because in my acting experiences years ago, um, the word had to come out because the character who was saying it, it's a, it's a part of his his dialogue. It's a part of his verbiage. So you know, this is an, you know the way you can hear it in some conversations out there. But I found when I was writing Blackjack and I was looking at the era, you know, it's an era when that word would have been said by certain people quite often and not in a complimentary fashion. I found I didn't want to use it. I, you know, understanding it legitimately would be there, I didn't want to use it. I just, I didn't want to write it there. So I found two little hacks that I could do for my own head. I could have a character start to use the word, and you get the first, like, two letters out, and then something interrupts it, either a gun to their mouth, a punch in the nose, or someone cuts them off in some other way. Do not say that in front of him. Right, right, <laughs> right. Okay, and, and so there's that. The other thing is um, sneakier and, and more cowardly. But again, I don't want to use the word. I don't want to yeah. constantly see that in, in, in these stories. Where, again, it would be legitimate, um, is that someone will say, I know what you're thinking, don't. You know? So we don't even get the hint of the word, but right. we can, as the writer, and then within you know, the audience, they can go, oh, I know what he's going to say. Right, because you know what would be said here, but I'm not saying it. I just refuse to say it. Well, and, the, and so you make, you make these choices, and you then execute them the best you can, but again, it comes from learning how to do that. Right. You know? But, you know, it it can haunt you, you know. I have a story that I haven't written yet uh, called The North, and it's about the neighborhood I grew up in. Mm -hmm. It was changing from an Irish ghetto to a more diversified community. You know, uh, white flight began and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there were race fights. And you know that, you know, that, that word was flying. Oh, yeah. And it's an integral part of that story. Mm -hmm. And the, oh, the protagonist being shocked and having to process all that because he was protected from it. You know? And then when it came, I mean, he knew what the word meant. But, that, you know, so to, to write a, word, a story that absolutely demands that word and being a writer who... You are. Uh, I ref, you know, I have up to this point, I have refused to use that word. That's one of the reasons I haven't written that story yet. And it's an ongoing thought, you know, when I'm not thinking the other 20 stories that I'm working <laughs> on, you know. But I'm not distracted by everything else, yeah. Yeah, that'll go, and how, I, how will I eventually yeah. handle I will, I will offer this thought, and, and it's funny, considering what I've just said, um, some of the roles that I played, as I, as I mentioned, um, were not people that I have ever been or will ever be, but I can legitimately go there for the sake of creating a genuine character on that stage, as long as I remember who I am. Yeah. And, and I think that, again, as we both wrestle with our own, you know, questions, uh, somewhere in there is that practice. If you have to tell that story and tell that truth, 
in order to get that story out there to generate the conversations that will come from it and hopefully maybe even move someone or some people in a better direction. But, and you as a storyteller can go there. Right. But we would remember who you are right. at the beginning, middle and end of the experience. We would hope that if if there are aspiring writers listening to us, they get the point that we're saying that any of those kind of words would have to be hard fought. You know? Mm. They, they would have to they would really have to have done the toughest thing there is to do, which is to be absolutely honest with yourself mm. about why you're using it, you know. Uh even even in this what, 28th or 48th rewrite of City of Woe, which is now everyone pays, I still find myself dropping the F-bombs that were in there. Unnecessary, unnecessary, unnecessary. You know, and you, one of the processes, uh, one of the the uh, elements of getting to be a better and more veteran writer is that you find out how much you don't need and how much you can do without. And if that, you know, N-word or you know, when I was a kid, the kids discovered uh, that my mom's last name was Rodriguez. And uh, suddenly there was graffiti on the playground where we were. Chris is a spick, you know, and that kind of stuff. Um, that word, if that comes up in a story, that word has baggage. That has, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, it, it can hurt, you know. Along the adjacent to the N word, so you know why are you telling that story? Are you saying it to drop that word? Why are you creating that character because you want to say that all the time, or is it because it's integral to the story you're telling? You know, and if you really have to be aware, you know, in I just why are you doing what you're doing? Exactly. In in bringing our episode to a close, because we could go on for another hour, but um, I just want to drop one more thing here that sort of ties into the other things we were talking about. You were talking about uh, Everyone Pays, you know, formerly City of Wealth, and Mallory and Gunner, and them being, you know, they are cops. Uh, there's a cop world, and there's all kinds of things that go on within it. You're aware of those things because of family members who were police officers and years of that. Um, and then we were talking about word usage and things, words that you don't use because either it's your personal thing or maybe because of the reading level that you're writing to uh, or the audience that you're going for, you can't use such and such a word. And you're thinking, well, it won't have the same power. I was, um, again, doing some research and wound up watching multiple clips of a show I haven't watched in years called NYPD Blue. Mm -hmm. And I was watching a number of clips on the character Sipkowitz. Sure. Right? Who is very blue-collar, very old-world cop. Obviously, you know, when he was a, he'd was he been in the military, he'd gone from the military into the police force, come up in the ranks. And you you know, if you certainly if you grew up in New York and you have some sense of that time period, you know that that was one of those white cops that you would have seen in certain situations and you would have expected them to say and do certain things that would have definitely been negative and impactful on your life and not in a good way. But you watch this character trying to be who he is, but also trying to adjust to the changes that are happening around him, to the losses, 
to the kind of work he does and the stuff that he's seen, trying to make sense of, of where does he fit now in this world and how can he do his job and yet, you know, the anger that's in there, the confusion, and it's all so well written. And the actor portrays it so, at least for me, so solidly that at times when he does something I don't like, I still am interested in him. You know, I still, I still get it. I still understand this, this human being may have some traits I'm not cool with, but, okay, watching him go through this and watching him lose and, and hurt and then fight for the right thing and then learn. Because one of the characters in, this, in the squad uh, who is an administrator is a gay character, a young gay man, and is not dynamic and aggressive. It just wants to be respected and, and is taking some hits from this, you know, his, his life choice. And you see Sipkowitz is having trouble dealing with what, what are you? And, and, and he has to go through that process to finally seeing him as a human being, but then becoming involved in his life in a way that makes him protective of this guy, mm. but protective of a co-worker and then a, a person he, 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 he cares about to whatever degree he can. You don't hurt him. You don't mess with him because that's my buddy or that's the person I want. Watching that grow and, again, understanding where he came from, fascinating that they went for all this. And I think they, with that character in particular, that they really did so well with him. Mm-hmm. Not once do you hear certain words constantly being spewed, even though in the real world, yeah, I probably would have heard those words a thousand times. Well, actually, when I did research into the NYPD, cursing isn't big because it can get you jammed up. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in a bar later, you know, your off-duty language might be different. But your on-duty language, you are very aware of, of what you're saying and the amount of civilian complaints that could come up just for dropping an F-bomb. God forbid we even think of the N-word or anything like that. Um, you know, you know, if you notice, and this is not letting anyone off the hook and all that sort of stuff in all of these cases where a cop shot a kid, a black kid or stood on a, uh, kneeled on a guy's neck or anything like that. It's not a lot of, uh, um, description of him. And he was saying N word, N word, N word. It's the actions revealing the racism. Because they trained the one thing. Now they got to train the bigger thing. Yeah. That's a bigger thing. God bless you. Because, you know, I mean, I, like you said, I come from family cops. You know, my father was a good man. You know, but he was surrounded. He worked down in Simpson Street. He was surrounded by all sorts of, it was, you know, all, all sorts of racism. You know, um, he wasn't the Serpico or any of that stuff. He was just just another cop and all that sort of stuff. But um, the idea of sim- of trying to simply do the right thing, you know, is the core of a, a, a lot of cops that don't kill the black kid, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? But then and, that goes to character, and that takes us back to knowing your character because as a human being, knowing. it helps if you know your character. Yeah. You know who you are. You know? Yeah. Some of them, some yep. of them say all the right stuff, but in the core. Yeah. That's not who they are. the black kid. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, because of whatever. And I, again, a lot of stuff we need to write about. We so, need and, to write. and that's what we will be doing most assuredly. And we hope that you will be doing as well. Thank you, everybody, for sitting in listening. I know we ran a little long today. I won't say forgive us for that because I hope we served that time well. Um, let us know. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, yeah. drop comments and stuff. We got a few things coming up in February. That's yes. I think. Yes, we do. Including you will get and we'll give you the date next week. You will get an opportunity to see us live and and ask us questions and say wonderful things about my cooking. <laughs> it's alive. You this February. <laughs> uh, yes, in February we will be doing a live event, so uh, keep keep your ears to the to the uh, to the mic for that because we will be talking about that. Or keep it to your speakers. We'll be talking in the mics, sure. and we'll give you that date next week. And uh, also, we're going to have, like I said, we're going to have Q and A time when we do live. But we're also going to be posting some questions and asking for questions from you guys over the next week as well. So keep your eyes to social media. You know, we have our Tell the Damn Story page on Facebook. We have an Instagram account, uh, definitely, and you know we have our email folks that we send stuff to as well. So just respond. Let us know what you want to know from us, what kind of questions you have, and we're going to throw some questions at you for your input as well. So keep listening. Chris, as always, a, a, a fun romp and ride, as well as a very solid um, and insightful dialogue about some very important things. And we went up against a few things today. Yes, we did. Yes, yeah. And we're still standing. I'm still standing. Okay, not better. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you tell the damn story. Take care, Chris. Peace, brother. Take care, everyone.